You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. I am absolutely delighted today to have as our guest Christopher Andrew, Professor Christopher Andrew. He is Great Britain's leading historian of intelligence and is a a frequent presenter on BBC documentaries on that subject and has been a visiting professor at Harvard. Uh, Recently, he has completed Defend the Realm, the authorized history of MI5. Uh, For this purpose, Uh, Christopher Andrew was made a member of MI5, the only man so identified along with the director uh, publicly. Uh, And this is the first such authorized history by any leading intelligence or security agency in the world. So we're delighted to have you here today, Christopher. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Peter. I'm going to throw a word at you, and we'll just see what you have to say. You're a serious student of history, want to make the, of intelligence history, want to make the most of this interview, Bond. James Bond. Well, I think it's not often realized just just how much good James Bond has done British intelligence. Because uh, what it's done is give us brand identification. Uh, So let me give you the example of a former head of uh, MI6, the Secret Intelligence Service, uh, Foreign Intelligence Agency, who told me that uh, as a young officer he was uh, uh, in the depths of the, the Third World and he was about to meet in the national interest a tribal leader who he assumed knew no English. Well, broadly true, but this man, the tribal leader, did know one sentence, which is probably known because the majority of the world have seen and mostly liked James Bond films, uh, a sentence which is known uh, by an awful lot of people around the world. So our man from MI6 was greeted with, hello, Mr. Bond. <laughs> now, you know, Bond is the only brand leader who has uh, remained the brand leader for over 50 years. I mean, Coca-Cola has had more trouble with Pepsi uh, than Bond has with anybody else. The other thing is, of of, of course, which tends to be forgotten, that there have been some real Bonds. Now, in MI5, when I was writing the book, I discovered somebody who did things that even Bond wouldn't dare do. So this was a man who was a a First World War fighter pilot, uh, who was called the Mad Major because he was partly mad, and secondly, he was uh, wholly a major. And what was his hobby? His hobby was flying under all the London bridges. <laughs> and the book contains a picture of him flying under one of London's western bridges, best-known bridges, the uh, Westminster Bridge, just by the Houses of, uh, of Parliament. Now, 
Amongst the people who noticed this was Adolf Hitler. So uh, Adolf Hitler had him invited over um, to Germany in the 1930s, and he spent 40 minutes talking to him at a Munich air show. When he got back, he was uh, asked to spy for German intelligence, the Abwehr, on the Royal Air Force. And he said, that's fine, uh, stopping only to ask MI5 if that would be in fact be fine. And they said, yeah, perfectly okay, uh, so long as you just uh, tell the Abwehr what we want you to tell them. And secondly, you tell us how to make the contact details. So out of this bizarre story, there is a really important conclusion. It was through what MI5 learnt uh, from the Mad Major, real name Christopher Draper, about how to contact German intelligence and the box numbers in various parts of Germany and so on, that we were able to get on to, and this is a name I think known to uh, many uh, friends of the Spy Museum, Snow. In other words, the beginnings of the biggest deception in the entire history of warfare, the double cross system, all began with flying under London bridges. Oh, that's a wonderful story. And that is in your book. That is in my that book, in along book. with the pictures. Along with the photograph. <laughs> Could you just summarize um, for us the role of MI5? It's not quite the FBI. It's not law enforcement. It's certainly not the CIA. It's a uniquely British institution. And I wonder if you could just give our listeners just a sense of it, of its role in the British government. Okay, well, the, uh, uh, the role of MI5, the Domestic Security Service, is uh, the title of the book, Defend the Realm. Uh, its crest, which is on the front cover, actually has a Latin tag, Regnum Defende, which means uh, defend the realm. It's just the fact that over its first hundred years, the things that the realm has needed defending against have changed very radically. So when it was founded in 1909, the run-up to the First World War, uh, the great problem was uh, German espionage, and it was wholly devoted to counter-espionage. Nowadays, 100 years on, only 3.5% of its resources are devoted to counter-espionage. It's now overwhelmingly uh, a counter-terrorist organization. Um, so it's been defending the realm for 100 years, but what it's been defending the realm against uh, has changed a lot. The main difference with the FBI is that it's in no sense a police force. It doesn't have the power of arrest. So when it discovers spies, when it discovers Islamist terrorists, it's the police who have to arrest them. You know, uh, after the 9-11 Commission uh, recommendations, there was some consideration being given to creating an MI5 type uh, institution in this country. Uh, in the end, that wasn't done. The decision was made to, in effect, beef up the uh, FBI's National Security Division. Would you see it as uh, transferable to the United States, or do you think it is uniquely British? Uh, yes to both questions. Uh, All right. Yes. Fair enough. I mean, one of, one of the problems is that something that works on one side of the uh, Atlantic doesn't necessarily work on the other side of the Atlantic because the constitutions are so different. I would simply say that from a British point of view, keeping the police function uh, separate from the security service function is considered extremely important. Why? Because uh, the first priority of uh, police forces uh, is to prevent um, crime, if it can, but then to find out the perpetrators of, of crime afterwards. Now, the, the main purpose of the security service is to keep track of threats to security, and these do not necessarily involve law-breaking, so that before 9-11, uh, the fact that uh, a number of Islamists were taking flying lessons in various parts of the United States without showing any particular interest in how to take off and how to land. That wasn't any kind of breach of any law. 
Um, so it's not likely to rise to the top of the agenda of a police force. But it would have risen to the, the top of the agenda of a security service which was actually focused on the Islamist threat. I mean, that said, you know, the presidential system suits um, uh, the United States. Uh, it would not, I think, suit the United Kingdom. Um, so from the moment that I've made out a case, which I think I perhaps have, uh, for having a separate police function and a separate security service function in the United Kingdom, uh, I don't think I've necessarily made out a case for the United States. As I mentioned, uh, in celebration of its centenary, uh, founded in, in, in 1909, they've selected you to do the authorized history. And I think a number of, of, of our listeners will want to take a look at Defend the Realm because it's a fascinating history. And I just wonder, did you in fact, were you given access to any file you wanted in MI5 to do this history? Well, the amazing answer to that question, Peter, is yes, absolutely everything. I mean, there was some stuff that I didn't la ask to look at for the 20th, 20th century. Um, you know, I wanted to know uh, what we learnt by bugging the headquarters of the British Communist Party, which we did continuously from uh, 1942 up to the point at which the uh, British Communist Party pretty much um, uh, collapsed and sold its, its, its headquarters. But I wasn't curious about how you did it and so on, so I just don't know the, um, uh, the technical details. Then for the 21st century, I did not ask to see the, uh, the files of cases which had yet come to court, or if they were in court, uh, hadn't yet reached um, uh, a resolution. But otherwise, no, everything that I asked for, yes, I was able to see it. Now, of course, there's a lot that I can't quote, but what I was tremendously concerned about is that uh, Conclusions that I arrived at on the basis of files that I was allowed to quote uh, should be consistent with files that I wasn't allowed to quote. So I spent just about as much of my time looking at material which I couldn't quote as I did um, uh, material that I could quote. So to the best of my knowledge, there is nothing in the book that is contradicted by material which still remains too highly classified to quote. Hmm. Well, <clears throat> you know Americans who do follow the, the spy wars, as it were, uh, certainly uh, are aware of the so-called the so Cambridge Five, um, Philby, uh, Philby, McLean, and the others. And one of the things that I think is striking about that, well, let me ask you first if, if you would comment on the role that MI5, and I know it's probably more than you can do in the limited time we have, but if you could just touch on the, the Philby case, the Cambridge Five, mm. insofar as it concerned MI5. Well, MI5 bungled. It uh, took far too long to um, uh, discover who they were and uh, what they'd done. And uh, by the time it really got onto them, um, three of them, well, two of them initially, Burgess and McLean, fled to Moscow. And it was pretty difficult to pursue inquiries there when they fled there in 1951. And then Philby uh, uh, fled there at the beginning of, uh, of 1963. So it was not a glorious uh, episode in, uh, uh, in MI5. But it was a very, very difficult um, inquiry. And the, the reason was that when these five people, and, and the KGB from time to time called them the Magnificent Five, KGB loved Westerns, and after the, the great box office success, the Magnificent Seven came out in 1960, it started calling them the, um, uh, the Magnificent uh, Five. They'd managed to get into the corridors of power and into intelligence agencies at a point when Britain had, actually like the United, United States, no security systems to stop them. And before the First World War, before the Second World War, rather, not merely did the Foreign Office not have a security department, 
it didn't even have a security officer. Now, it's far more difficult to detect a penetration agent, a mole, um, once they're inside an organization than it is to set up systems to stop them getting in in the first place. So MI5 did bungle, no question about that. But uh, on the other hand, the real problem was that they were able to get into the British system in the first place. Well, certainly since World War II, uh, this country has enjoyed an extraordinary relationship with Great Britain, with the, with the, with the intelligence services, security services of Great Britain. Could you uh, discern to what extent the whole Philby affair uh, affected that relationship between British security services and the American security services? Well, this was a pretty touchy period in uh, British-American intelligence uh, relations. I think one of the things that's not been realized is that uh, one of the sneaky methods uh, devised by the British to try and calm down uh, J. Edgar Hoover was to make him a knight. Uh, so um, his real name is Sir J. Edgar Hoover, except that, of course, being a citizen of the Great Republic of the United States, he couldn't use the, the title. So that calmed him down a, a little bit. But here was the problem. I mean, incredible embarrassment. Philby, um, who was, I think, the most accomplished liar in 20th century uh, uh, British history, strong competition uh, for that uh, position. But I, I would defend Philby's claim uh, to be the, the, the cleverest liar in modern uh, British history. So even though he subsequently denied it to the KGB, just before he was about to defect, and he was in Lebanon at the time, uh, to Russia, he did actually confess to a uh, uh, colleague and uh, friend in MI6 that he had been a Soviet spy up to uh, 1946. Uh, now, both MI5 and uh, uh, MI6 uh, believed that that was the worst that it was. So a letter was sent off uh, from the heads of both MI5 to MI6 to J. Edgar Hoover saying, this is terrible, but um, uh, Fortunately, we, we're sure that he's right in uh, he's being honest at long last in saying that he, he stopped working for the Russians in 1946. And then, uh, therefore, no major American secrets have been prejudiced. Uh, less than a week later, he fled to the Soviet Union. Yes. And Sir, Sir Dick White, <coughs> who was then head of uh, MI6, had been head of MI5. And Sir Roger Hollis, the head of MI5, had to write a groveling letter to Sir J. Edgar Hoover, explaining that, unfortunately, they'd got it wrong the first time round. So it's pretty difficult, isn't it, to imagine a more embarrassing episode than that? Were, you know, I, I think uh, some folks who follow, who follow those events were struck by the fact that, in some cases, there were no trials held, certainly in the case of Blunt and John Cairn Cross, and, and I'm trying to remember, in the, even in the case of, of the other three. Well, you see, there's still this belief on both sides of the Atlantic that if somebody is obviously guilty, uh, then there should be a trial in a court of law, and they should be found guilty. But hardly anybody who was discovered to be a spy, a Soviet spy, in the United States, as the result of uh, the, so the KGB uh, uh, telegrams, which were decrypted, the Venona source, was, um, uh, was ever prosecuted. I mean, the, um, the youngest major spy in the, uh, the 20th century, one of the two who did more than anything else to give the secrets of the first atomic bomb, uh, to, uh, to the Russians, uh, Ted Hall, and who, when things got a bit hot for him in the uh, United States, moved to live in the next street to me in, in, in Cambridge. Uh, Cambridge, of course, is infamous for having provided some of the best uh, spies for both sides, not simply for, um, uh, uh, for our side. But it wasn't for want of trying. 
uh, that he wasn't prosecuted. It is simply that the standards of evidence that you have to have in a court of law are quite different from those that an intelligence agency has to have to be satisfied that somebody actually yeah. was, was a spy. So <coughs> the John Cairncross, the fifth man story, the fifth man in the Ring of Five, the Magnificent Five, uh, the Anthony Blunt story, the fourth man in the Ring of Five, are actually quite similar to lots and lots of American cases, uh, like the, uh, the Ted Hall case. Um, but it wasn't for want of trying. Uh, over a period of more than 10 years, there was an attempt to get uh, Anthony Blunt to confess, and after about 10 years, it was concluded, well, the best we can do is simply strike a deal with him. Blunt to tell us everything that he knows, and he'll get immunity from prosecution. Something like that happened with John Cancros, who by that time was teaching in an American um, uh, university. So it, it wasn't that there was any kind of cover-up. It's simply uh, the thing which I think is rightly not advertised. I mean, governments do not go around advertising the fact that it's actually very difficult if you decide to become a uh, spy for a foreign power um, to catch you out if you're um, a, a clever fellow. Well, Blunt was a very, very clever fellow. Ted Hall was a very, very clever fellow, graduated at the age of 18, summa cum laude as a physics major from Harvard University. John Cairncross was a very, very clever fellow, passed first into the Foreign Office um, uh, after he, he, he left uh, Cambridge. So no cover-up, just the difficulty in getting a conviction. Yes, and of course we see the same thing here. People always wonder why it takes so long to uh, bring folks to trial and often lack of evidence, the need to, to build up the cases. Well, there's one the fairly, fairly notorious yeah. diplomat who I'm not going to identify who is uh, still um, at liberty in the uh, United States and people have made huge allegations against him, but I've noticed that there has been no lawsuit, no trial so far. One of the, of course, one of the uh, controversial uh, heads of, of MI5 was, was it Sir Roger Hollis? And uh, I, I know you treat that in the book, and I wonder if you could perhaps just make some comments uh, here. Absolutely. I mean, the, uh, the extraordinary allegation that Sir Roger Hollis, who was head of MI5 from 1956 to 1965, had simultaneously uh, been a Soviet agent and indeed had been a career uh, Soviet agent, uh, that was terribly damaging to the Anglo-American special relationship, not because uh, people who are taking their medication on either side of the Atlantic in the intelligence communities of the two uh, uh, countries actually believed it, but simply to have to tell your ally uh, that you are investigating the last head on suspicion of being a Soviet spy. And um, his deputy as well, uh, Graham Mitchell, was terribly, terribly damaging. What happened? The problem was that after having discovered the unbelievable truth of Soviet penetration in both the United States uh, and in the United Kingdom, there was a small number of conspiracy theorists who thought, my goodness, if they did it, um, who else has been doing it? And surely they must have been protected at the very top. So in many ways, uh, the stories of the two leading conspiracy theorists on both sides of the, uh, the Atlantic, Peter Wright, uh, the author of the best-selling uh, memoirs on British intelligence. Why? Because even though it's a lousy book, he got it banned by Her Majesty's government and <laughs> that persuaded people on this side of the Atlantic. It must be really important. Uh, and then James Jesus Angleton, or rather uh, the Jesus only, I think, is, is used by authors since uh, uh, Jim Angleton in, in the United States. Um, the, what people, I think, tend to forget is the emotional experience of treachery. Anybody who has been betrayed by a close colleague or a close friend, 
or a close member of the, of, of the family, it is apt to warp the way that they look at the rest of the world. Peter Wright uh, emerged from uh, the discovery that Burgess, McLean, Philby, Blunt were traitors uh, with a warped view of the world. And I would say that uh, uh, Jim Angleton, uh, uh, who knew Philby very well, I mean, his, his, his view of the world was warped by the experience of, of betrayal by Philby. You, you've looked at the history of MI5, which of course takes you through from the war, through the Cold War, and you've had a chance to look at MI5 today. Yes. What is your sense of the need today to confront a very different kind of problem, a very different kind of domestic issue? Uh, it's one we share, and uh, I think uh, the recent uh, shootings at Fort Hood in this country highlight again that the difficulties of, of, identify, of coping with, even identifying, where there may be problems. To what extent or what can you tell us today about MI5's uh, posture in, in dealing with that? Well, two main conclusions. Uh, one is that uh, the, uh, the special relationship, an embarrassing phrase, but on the other hand a reality, is more important now than it's, it's ever been. Just one example of that, which is described in the book. The first aircraft, foreign aircraft, allowed into U.S. airspace after 9-11 on the 12th of September 2001 had three really important people on board, plus one or two others. One was the head of MI6, uh, Sir Richard Dealoff, the other was the deputy head and future head of MI5, Eliza Manningham Buller. And the third was the director of GCHQ, RNSA, our code breaking. Uh, the, the fact that this happened within 24 hours of 9-11 is, I think, some evidence of how crucial, and I don't think that's too uh, exaggerated a word, um, the uh, uh, US-UK intelligence alliance remains in confronting a transnational problem. The problem since 9-11 has been how to prevent um, a British 9-11. Um, Britain is a m much softer target uh, than the, the United States. And broadly speaking, uh, what MI5 have done, what a lot of other people, um, has been to prevent a British 9-11. There have been one or two moments when it was very close. But only uh, a few months ago, in September 2009, uh, not perhaps much as much noticed on this side of the Atlantic as it might have been, the most important counter-terrorist trial in British history by absolutely none concluded. Now this was the trial of um, uh, the people who uh, changed and made more complicated all our experiences of flying by air in the summer of um, 2006. Uh, once again, it was going to involve suicide bombers on aircraft. This time, it was going to be seven uh, aircraft. Uh, they weren't going to attempt to take over the aircraft as they did on 9-11. Uh, but once again, they thought of a way which was so simple of getting bombs on board that it would have been under the radar of high-tech societies like the US and the UK. And what were the bombs? Uh, the bombs were um, soft drinks bottles from which with syringes the, so the soft drink had been removed and hydrogen peroxide colored to look like the soft drink Gatorade or whatever it was had been replaced. What was going to be the detonator? Well, something you can actually buy in airports. It was the flash mechanism on a disposable camera. Now, the reason that 9-11 succeeded was that the perpetrators, uh, the suicide hijackers, were not under surveillance uh, before the attack. 
the reason that um, the attempt in 2006 failed is that they were. But think about it. This time, there would have been seven planes, all taking off from Heathrow in London for um, great North American cities, uh, five in the United States, uh, two in Canada, and uh, all would have been destroyed. It's quite conceivable that several of them would have been destroyed over uh, North uh, American cities. And if that had happened, not merely would the loss of life potentially have been even greater than on 9-11, but it would absolutely have destroyed uh, air communication between uh, Britain and uh, the United States. And this was only to be the first wave. So the British 9-11, which didn't happen, would have been even worse than the US 9-11, which did happen. You know, we opened uh, and you commented on Bond the brand. I have to think that this, uh, this work that you've done, Defend the Realm, will become the standard reference. I have to think that it will be an extraordinary eye-opener for the British public and it will position MI5 in an entirely new place as to how it's viewed by the British public. And for that, I think you've made an extraordinary contribution. Um, and let me just ask you for a last comment on now that you've finished it and it's out there, what do you think the outcome will be of, of giving MI5 this brand new picture uh, in the eyes of the British public? Well, what I hope will be what I think the Spy Museum has uh, already achieved in the United States, to make people realize that this is a normal and necessary part of life. When people are plotting things uh, against you, it doesn't matter whether they're you know, about to steal your mobile phone or blow up a large part of Washington. They don't text you beforehand or email you and say, at uh, 9 o'clock tomorrow, we're going to be doing this. They do it in secret. So, so the only way of getting ahead of them is to discover their secrets. And the only way of discovering their secrets is to have um, a good intelligence service. So what I hope um, is uh, that this book will help to see, uh, help British citizens to see, like visitors to the Spy Museum already see, uh, that a good intelligence agency is a normal and necessary part of, uh, of, uh, of daily life. You know, there have to be systems of accountability uh, to make sure that intelligence agencies, uh, like the rest of the federal government or the rest of the British government, behave properly, but we can't do without them. The difference between having one that is working and one that is not working can be summed up in two phrases, 9-11 and Pearl Harbor. Well, Christopher, it has been terrific having you with us today, and I, I really hope that you'll come back and join us again. And thank you for doing the book. Thank you, Peter. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you.